bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and we have a special guest today, Shireen Ahmed. So Shireen is a writer, public speaker, and an award-winning sports activist focusing on Muslim women in sports and the intersection of racism and misogyny of sport. She is a diversity and inclusion consultant, an athlete, advocate, community organizer, and works with youth of color on empowerment projects and is an avid sports coach and mentor. She is also a regular contributor to TSN, Muslima Media Watch, and a former Globe Sports correspondent for Safe World for Women and Muslim Women in Sports website. She is part of a team of five women who created the weekly Burn It All Down podcast, which is the first feminist sports podcast that analyzes sports culture from an intersectional feminist lens. Welcome, Shireen. Thank you for having me. I'm trying to unmute myself. I'm still not, you know, used to the whole thing. It's it's like, because I mute myself because undoubtedly one of my kids will like start banging dishes at the time. (laughs) Like it's like they're programmed to when you need silence, there's, and I do the same, like they're presenting her in class and I start (laughs) cooking. So, So, you know, 18, what, 16 months later, we're still trying to adjust. Yeah. 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 So how, um, how has Euro 2020 been for you? Uh, Euro 2020. I actually really enjoy for all my, you know, my, one of my sons said to me, isn't Euro men's football, like everything you don't believe in. Like I really like Captain America. And similarly, he's like, that's like everything you don't like, like American white men. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, but I like the complications and the intersections of football and sort of seeing how, you know, an interest of mine and a point of focus has always been, immigration histories and xenophobia in Europe as it relates to football in particular, France, Belgium, you know, you know, whatever, what have it. Um, and, and, and England, of course. So I, I watch it for that. It's like, let's go Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford, but down with the empire. So it's yeah. like, it's, you know, it's like basically like rooting for all the black and brown players. Basically. Um, yeah. That's what I, it comes down to. And I'm here for, I'm so here for Benzema being on France. I cannot tell you. Okay. So I was talking. Okay. So uh, let me tell you where my like absolute love for football came from. And it's from my dad. And I was reading about you and your mom and you being a Habs fan. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like me and my dad. My dad and I connected a lot through sport, through soccer and American football both footballs and you know the till this day my dad will talk about the 1966 world cup and how england cheated mm-hmm. how they broke pele's foot yeah mm-hmm. how you know how things were being called that the, that they were at home in wembley and it also it also starts to build this idea of sports teams and then connecting it 
to these greater political issues you know like what did my dad say the other day they like he's like they teeth the game they teeth the game they like they teeth we from africa and i was just like oh lord here we go it's football season because i know my dad's on this rat right <laughs> i mean i he's have not to say <laughs> no papa erica is not wrong like yeah. he is absolutely not wrong and I mean what what I love about football and particularly like the Euros is those conversations the yeah. conversations that happen in WhatsApp the memes yeah. that come out like the yeah. discussion on Twitter I have like a, a like a group of um, football writers and academics and and and, and uh, those who call ourselves the disruptors but the same people I usually interact with during matches and stuff like that and we've been doing this for, oh my goodness, I don't know how many World Cups. We've, I think since 2014, I, I got on Twitter 2011. Mm-hmm. So I think that it was after that, the first World Cup after that was 2014. So we, yeah. we've been actually doing this every major tournament, men, men's and women's World Cup. It's like, you know, so the commentary is happening there. And to your dad's point, I mean, 66, we know it's as bad as Suarez, like, you know, cheating and beating Ghana for one of yeah. the reasons I'm never going to accept that man also because he's racist. But, um, you know, it hasn't done the work to kind right. of walk back from that. I mean, this is one thing to have this thing happen. And I've also learned in my time, the importance of grace and giving people space to unlearn and then act on that unlearning, right? Right. Like this whole idea. I mean, I'm not about to comment on cancel culture. That's not what this segment is from or about, right. but I'm just saying the way that there's some people who have done work and there's some arguably that have not. So, um, you know, there's moments in football history that that stay with us. Yeah. And 66 is one. I was not alive at the time, mm-hmm. um, but I heard about it. You I mean, for me, one of the most pivotal moments, again, was Suarez, you know, the handball and then, yeah. the, the, you know, Ghana beating, you know, the Black Stars beating, being eliminated prematurely. Yeah. My opinion. Uh, I don't think I will ever let that go. And then another... I actually just wrote about this in the walrus when I started this essay, I wrote about fandom um, and the power of fandom is the moment in the 2012 Olympics when the Canadian women had this egregious call against them that nobody heard. And for me, that's one of the most scarring things in, in football actually yeah. Yeah. is, is that moment. And I remember it because it was like the injustice of it. And I think that's what your dad's alluding to is the injustice yeah. of like teething that team out of Africa, right? Like that whole thing is it's injustice. And that relates back to the systems that allow it. And yeah. sport is sport. You're going to get bad calls. You're going to get a ref is having a day. Mm-hmm. But when we dig, and I like digging deeper and diving deeper into it, like then mm-hmm. it's far more complicated than that. It is far more complicated and it reflects a lot of what's happening in the, like it reflects the complications in society. And, and I think that that's what's so exciting when you see that, I mean, what did I comment recently that, oh, you know, Belgium's winning because they have black and brown people on their team now. (laughs) And, you know, and then I started thinking, are they even citizens? Like, have they given these people citizenship, you know, and all of that. So now we're back to these political issues. But, you know, these are things that are talked about. The whole idea of immigration is really wound up in uh, European football, this I watched England play. <laughs> play is doing heavy lifting in that sense. I was going to say, it'd be very gracious <laughs> right there. Yeah, exactly. And, and I laughed at them 
And it was like, and I laughed at them because all this money in the Premier League, which is arguably the number one league in, in the world, arguably, if you want to talk about the league or whatever, whatever. But the point is that, um, you know, there has been since I would say probably the 90s, this ongoing discussion about Club England football mm-hmm. versus country England football mm-hmm. and how the difference between the two is, is migration of players, for example, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, because those are the clubs with the big bucks. So um, the discrepancy or the delta in that is definitely wound up in, you know, colonialism, imperialism, Mm -hmm. immigration, Mm -hmm. etc. And you really see the tide recede at these national events. And it does make you wonder if the so-called greatness of these Western nations is not predicated on immigration the same way the greatness of the Premier League is predicated on immigration. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's those are all the things that are really important to know. Yeah. And you know, just jumping back to what you were saying about immigration and, you know, having strong players in Belgium, for example. I mean, if you look historically, and we, we did this the last, I think, 2014, World Cup. I mean, Laurent Dubois definitely did this. Um, and Africa is a country that it's a fantastic. And Sean Jacobs, who's over there, um, yeah. he yeah. Uh, and, and Tony Karen do a lot of work about this. And they're part of that club of you know people. Football That's is a country. Africa is a country. Com, right? Yes. Like the web the website yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And so we clarity. engage. And I've you know written for them about Women's World Cup. I wrote about yeah. Nigeria because I have this obsession with the Nigerian team and Asisato Shawala yeah. and you know for a long for a long time. Oh yeah. So. So who is also a, uh, I'm just going to add this, a Champs League winner. I'm just going to add that in there. She's with Barcelona and, and you know, Asisato Shawala is the first African woman to win a Champs League trophy. So this past year with uh, FC Barcelona. Um, and I think that where we're talking about immigration, it's really interesting, because you know, when there's so many systems of xenophobia that exist there. So what happened was somebody, and this is available on the internet for sure, the Twitterverse lives on. Um, the idea that when you take away, when people are critical or this concept that came from England, because the FA has been historically wretched with dealing with anti-Blackness and anti-racism, yeah. with racism rather, when you take a photo of the national team and then kind of black out the key players that are come from immigrant histories and communities and experiences, what's left, like the homegrown, the FA was dead set on this idea of homegrown players yeah. and what that meant. And essentially that was, a, except for Marcus Rashford, who grew up in the in development system, you have exceptions, but the idea was that they would be white. That's, yeah. that's the, that's the ideology. Here. Yeah. You know, so, and this goes back to, sorry, just to interrupt you. Uh, this goes back to who is an English, what, who is an English person? Like who is British? Mm-hmm. Right. And we saw that play out in Brexit just to link some stuff, but carry on. Yeah. Um, so the idea of who is British and who is entitled to this is very much centers around whiteness. And we see that in football, even though it's the world's game, it's a global game. But as it relates to England or as it relates to European countries, and we're not talking about like Canada, US, Turtle Island, we're talking about Europe 
in, mm-hmm. in particular. And I think one of the things that's fascinating in a lot of my interest in research, and I've written up for Sports Illustrated on this with Laurent Dubois as it relates to women, mm-hmm. but in terms of men, um, the idea that it's a very fraught history, like you had in the 60s, Rashad Makhloufi, who left with the FLN, and he left France to play for Algeria because of a, a like literally a distress of identity, because although, you know, you have generations of people who are born in France, like I interviewed for Burn It All Down, Lisa Zimouche, who is a freestyle footballer athlete and incredible. She has like a million followers on Instagram. She's incredible. But while we were speaking, she consistently referred to herself as North African, mm-hmm. even though she and her parents were both born in France. There's a disconnect between what is permissible to be French, like the idea that you have to look a certain way and act a certain way. However, the FFF, and I'm just coming off like a series of anger tweets this morning because I cannot. With the FFF, they have been, rage is perfect for this podcast. It's, it's very appropriate. I mean, yes. I'm literally, you know, part of a podcast called Burn It All Down. So, yeah. I mean, I totally understand that. And I mean, there was an article that Jesse Williams, a writer who published with The Guardian, wrote about Les Hijabos. Les Hijabos is a group of women, a black and brown women. Um, and and allies who are fighting the FFF. And it's really important for your listeners to know this because as we celebrate the rise of, of women, you know, the women's game, the Fédération de football Française is still the only, the FFF, the only federation in the entire world that bans women from playing, coaching, being any part of management, being wow. trainers or refereeing at all. So they've banned it. And we know this is rooted in racism. It's actually antithetical to their own constitution. I've had Rim Sarah Alouan, who is a PhD candidate in, in, in jurisprudence and, and in French law. She's literally studying constitutional French law to be able to understand and fight these type of racist, you know, this type of racist act by, by not just France, but, you know, it has its, as it applies to sport. And although FIFA struck down a hijab law very publicly in 2014, March 1st, 2014, the FFS still upholds this. And so in 2019, you had the Women's World Cup. I was in France. I actually went to France, invited to speak on this issue as the whole world was celebrating the women's game, was celebrating everything. Women in that same country are not permitted to play recreationally, professionally, semi-professionally in schools, in, you know, like if women choose to wear a headscarf, they're denied access to the pitch. So this is something that has been industriously kept from people learning. And also, also, you know me, I'm going to call out football media. Yeah. Because, you know, they'll write about, you know, Nicola Conte, they'll write about Mbappe, Kelly Mbappe, but they aren't going to write about black and brown women. Yeah. No, they're not. They're not. And they don't. This story is at the heart of an issue and discrimination. Like I was invited to the National Football Museum in Manchester in 2018 to, mm-hmm. to literally present to some of the world's foremost journalists and academics in football about what was happening in France and where it came from, what happened, why it's happening, it's continuing. So there's a bunch of us making noise for years. And so just this morning, actually, and uh, we're recording on the 21st of June, um, Jesse Williams uh, published something in The Guardian, which is really great. And I am have been an advisor to this group for a long time. So, I mean, not that I can't write about it, but I just think it was really important that it come from other journalists in the sports realm. It's absolutely necessary. So it seems like there's no recourse whatsoever. And that is the most frustrating thing 
that is the most frustrating thing about injustice is 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 once the injustice is blah, blah, once the injustice happens there's no recourse it comes down to um people it comes down to the fans sometimes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. this is what you wrote about in the walrus mm -hmm. about how fans have fundamentally changed the game mm -hmm. you know um i saw you know first of all <laughs> I know like this whole performative taking a knee is so performative, but the point being that, um, you know, waves of protests and the English media, the English sports media continues to be completely racist, especially in the way they write about like Raheem Sterling. Um, I think about Mario Balotelli in Italy and the abuse that he has um, endured mm -hmm. throughout his career and then having people call him, you know, explosive or, you know, like variations of this angry black man. And so you see this play out and there's no recourse. And so it comes, it literally comes down to the fans who's, as you said, whose investment is clear and it's, it's, even though it's not necessarily as rewarded as maybe it should. But I think what you were saying was, can all that adulation be properly rewarded anyway? But the point is, is that social media and the way the fans communicate has shift, has forced uh, um, some steps in service of a shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the whole idea about fandom is important. And that's why I talk about education a lot, because part of the system of keeping people in the dark about this and keeping people uninformed is specifically that not writing about it. So, you know, this piece in the walrus, I talked about three prongs in sports, like athletes, fans and media and media as archivists and chroniclers. And I think this is really important because I'm not just talking about ephemera and talking about front page and talking about cover models and all this kind of stuff. I'm talking about the stories that need to be reported and the stories that should be reported and included, because basically then you have media acting as gatekeepers for what can be talked about by the public. And, but now we're in a different phase. This is what I'm trying to say. Media is running to catch up because you've got people literally who brought down the European proposed European super league was the fans. And I just sat back yes. popping popcorn and yes. enjoying, enjoying. Oh, that this. was beautiful to watch. Can you can you give our listeners a little bit of background on what that is? And <laughs> <laughs> okay, so essentially, um, and I have a I had a I have a episode with uh, Faduma Olau, a te Telegraph uh, reporter, on for burn it all down somewhere as a hot take, because it was so much like literally as she and I are discussing how to manage it, everything keeps changing. Teams kept dropping out. So just for people that aren't familiar, the, there is currently a system called the Champions League. And the Champions League right now function as there are so many teams in the beginning in September that vie in for this tournament. And it's, it's a really cool tournament. And it takes players from teams rather from Turkey, from Spain, from the big ones, France, you know, Belgium, this, that, Ukraine. So you have different teams all over that wouldn't necessarily play each other in a domestic league, which is why it's so fun because it changes it up, right? Yeah. And we yeah. love that. I actually love the Champs League. Yeah. Um, I, I was joking with my friend that like, if I ever get married again, I want the Champs League anthem to like, what, be what I walk on the aisle to? <laughs> no way. 
I want that. I want no, that for me. But, but, but honestly, as a side <laughs> note, that anthem is legit. Is, it, it's regal. It's <laughs> like, it's, it's one of those anthems that you grow up listening to. Mm-hmm. And every time I swear, if they wanted to like program some people, they would just, they would just play that over and over again. And they would have us, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. For sure. And yeah. I think that, um, I think all the things that lead up to that are, um, you know, I think the, programming sorry I just lost my train of thought um the idea of champs league and 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 what competition is so getting back to what the super league is it was essentially teams from Spain Italy and England who had decided that they were going to do some very weird mashup of the champs league and not necessarily pull out of that but just do their own thing and they were going to be funded by JP Morgan this Mm -hmm. you know which is so bizarre but very appropriate for this financial mafia that Mm -hmm. was coming out so the fans didn't want any didn't want any of this and the rallying cries with which Fans came out because I think if we look historically at the origins of what football is, it wasn't an elitist game. It was a game for the people. No, in fact, you know, my, my dad who used to play, he's like, his dad said, uh, there was a, like, there was a class distinction. Football Mm -hmm. was for hooligans and the working class. Yes. And in the West Indies, cricket was the gentleman's Gentleman's game. game. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, it's and if you look at just football, it's the cheapest sport to play. Yes. Basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like little equipment. And back in the day, you can include 22 people quite easily, as we know, yeah. a lot of men formation or women formation. And um, you know, it was really it was really key here. So essentially within 24 hours, the idea of a super league was shut down. Man City walked away, you know, different teams walked away. And they were very tight-lipped, the coaches and players and stuff. But then the captains, and this was Brendan Rogers, actually came forward and collected all the captains in England and was like, we're going to have a conversation about this. So there was mobilization happening in different levels. So me over here in Toronto, I'm trying to have a conversation with the reporter in England about this, but everything keeps changing. And by the time we actually went to air, was 24 hours after we recorded, we had to, you know, record an update because that's how quickly this house of cards fell apart. And it was because largely of the fans, like hugely because of the fans, but also loved that JP Morgan issued an apology, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious because they were like, well, we didn't really realize, you know, the impact and, uh, of what this was. I'm like, so you Don't had you do risk analysis. No, no. No, and, and and I think that's what, for me, I literally was out here popping popcorn going, y'all are dumb because, you know, like you don't, how could you, how could you not know about the importance of football to fans? How could you not, you know? How could you dismiss that yeah. importance yeah. Yeah. as though it didn't matter? I mean, hello. Yeah, I, I, I thought this... I on when I first heard of the Super League. So, if all I thought about is all these, you know, the top tier clubs, the Man Cities, Man U's, um, Real Madrid, mm-hmm. uh, Barcelona, Juventus, 
Juventus. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing PSG was in there. Uh, F- France was not involved. In France was not involved. No, France was not involved. And <laughs> well, and neither was the- neither was Germany because I do want people to understand that Borussia Dortmund. It's one of the teams that's actually BVB is actually player owned. It's like a co-op. Of the yes. ownership. So there's no way JP Morgan was going to touch that. But then we're looking at we're looking at different things. We're looking about unionship and we're looking yeah. about ownership and what that looks like in cooperative ownership and how that actually exists in football in ways that are really important. And we saw that in the Super League because Germany's out there going, and I'm not out here to praise Germany for very many things, but mm-hmm. this was really interesting and in how they were interrogating and interacting in these spaces kind of like you know it, it's it's a good day for germans when german football gets to be like well we're morally superior i mean yeah how know? many times do they get to say that really <laughs> yeah so it's that's basically essentially what happened with the super yeah. league and that was a you know an example that i also used in my essay because it was huge i've never seen other than mobilization of fans in voter turnout from atlanta dream getting rid mm-hmm. of kelly loffler yes yes and yes. you know voting and reverend um Raphael Warnock Mm -hmm. I had never seen that kind of movement in this way in this manner and these spaces are owned largely by white billionaires yeah and so then they have to step back because the reason that they get any power at all is because or money is investment from fans you cannot have football without fans you can't do it not on this corporate and this capitalist model. Don't forget, this is a very capitalist model. So it wasn't, wasn't a win for the, you know, the the anti-capitalists necessarily. It's not like the Marxists were out here rejoicing, but what we did see was an ability to challenge the system, which Mm -hmm. is important. Let me, let me bring this up. Um, Sports (laughs) comment, sports commentating. And I was tweeting about this overrun in Canada by British and Scottish accents. Okay. I am done with this, Shireen. Okay. When, and I bring up, I brought up England at the top just so I could bring it back here. Okay. What has England and Scotland won? Uh, Where's this expertise? This assumption that the expertise in football lies in English and, and, and Scottish accents is disgusting to me i mean talk about vestiges of colonialism like stop stop that's what i'm saying yeah i mean i love this discussion of and i challenge uh brenda dr brenda Elsie and i'm a co-host on the podcast always talking about this like you know the, it's coming home this whole idea of it's coming home i'm like who's coming home like coming home with like patties and kinds of songs and goal celebrations like who's coming home yeah. Like the idea is that football was created in England, which I find really funny because I've actually found historical evidence that it was Scotland. And then before that, Brenda will argue with me and say, no, it's South America. It's actually a South American game. And then I'll say, no, no, no. no. Pe- didn't an indigenous, like, was Not it- to my knowledge. Lacrosse okay. was indigenous, not It football. was lacrosse that- um, It was lacrosse, okay. yeah. My bad. Um, but, but, and then I found more- uh, historical evidence that was actually a form of a game created in China like thousands of years ago. So, yeah. I mean, I'm just out here to say this this all ain't for the British, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, like it's just it's funny the, those the but you know as far as the Scots and the British and the commentating go, like 
I tweeted last week, I was tweeting, I had decided when I watched English, England play Scotland, which was going to be, you know, the, what do they label it? The uh, Battle of Britain. And I was like, Lord. So I was like, okay, we're, we're going to watch this. You know, we'll, we'll see what this is. But I decided to, instead of my usual commentary, that's pretty colorful. I decided to just use Bend It Like Beckham GIFs to comment on the game. Yeah. Yeah. which I did in 2018. And it was like one of my professional highlights of my life yeah. <laughs> to do this. of all the things I've ever accomplished. This was like, I'm so excited about this. So <laughs> I know. It's, Cause I saw some of those tweets and I was chuckling. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, we're going to have some fun here because, yeah, this, yeah. and also the match was completely boring. It was, it was unbelievably it was the, boring. Honestly, it was one of the worst matches I've watched in yeah. a while. It was yeah. so bad, so boring. I never realized, like, I always make fun of England because, you know, they're quarterfinal dropouts. And when they're not, they'll just exit on penalty kicks. And it's funny <laughs> because you think that, I don't know, in the last 30 years, they would have learned, they would have fixed that. But, you know, anyway, so I was just like, <laughs> I found the game not only boring, but the level of play was subpar. I mean, this long ball up the top, yeah. I thought they got rid of that. I mean, Scotland was using a lot of, I think, strategy in terms of the wing and kicking the ball up and long yeah. ball and chasing it, which is, you know, boring, because especially when we're talking about the Euros, where you get a lot of Spain and, and Portugal doing tiki-taka and short, quick passes. But I found yeah. that in terms of organization, there's a disconnect between Gareth Southgate and the team. And, you know, although I like Southgate, I don't often like British uh, uh, managers, but Gareth Southgate is actually one that seems to be a lot more in touch with anti-oppressive work, anti-oppression mm-hmm. work and understanding, you know, like anti-racism, he was supporting the players wanting to kneel and that kind of thing, which yep. usually the FA doesn't do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he is, you know, obviously selected by the FA. So, I mean, he's good in ways for that. Yeah, Absolutely. But the match itself was not great. And I remember watching Spain. I've been a fan of Spain for a long time because, like, the, I remember the olden days of Iniesta and Javi and Puyol. Like an oh, Iker Casillas. stop. I, I know. <sighs> right? Like, it's. Oh I remember those gosh. days. The I joy. literally. The joy. I know. The 2008 Spanish 2000, team. 2010 uh, World and, Cup Yeah, 8, yeah. 10. But, and, yeah, the 2008, yeah. like, Euro yeah. one, like, they won the Euros. Like, they yeah. were. They were sensational and yeah. they were dominant in a way that you just, it was beautiful to, you watch them and oh. you were breathless. And, oh my gosh, you know, I so still beautiful, the rhythm, the flow, the, the, flow, the fluidity oh. with which and the creativity yes. and the playmaking in the middle yes. by Iniesta and yes. people, Messi was coming up at the time and he was arguably back then everyone knew and knew that marked, he was going to be great. Yes. Yes. He was marked as a talent, but the way in which Iniesta passed it passed him. And I remember saying to my friend, Musa Kwanga, and we were just kind of joking about this. Musa um, is a writer in the UK and he does a podcast called Stadio. And I was messaging him. I said, you know, it's easy to be the best finisher in the world, you know, not taking away from his beautiful ball control, which is just outstanding. But when you're given passes, passes on a tray, the midfield, yeah. like yeah. on a silver tray, yeah. it's easy you know, not easy, but it, you're given like they're a gift from the football goddesses. Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, as manifested through him. And I remember those days and yeah. to watch this now, like Spain is a mess. I remember reading, a, I saw an article. 
I saw it's an a article mess. that says 2000, uh, what, 2014, Spain has recycled through 60 players. Wow. Spain? That's not, yeah, that's not good. That's not good. And and don't forget, Del Bosque, the former manager, had yeah. like a 20-year reign on that team. And they're, but they're a mess. Yeah. And, and so that kind of, but that's what I didn't, the, the midfield play just wasn't mm. there. And that's what you no, don't get not. from long brawls, right? Yeah. And you don't get that, that creative creation of space, those crosses, those through passes, mm-hmm. those, those, I mean, when you see, I mean, I, I don't think people understand the excitement of a beautiful through pass. No, I know on a transition in transition <laughs> yeah. like and then this like it is a beautiful buildup of of rhythmic flow and it, it like that's what Spain did so well and I'm not expecting England to be beautiful you know I'm not expecting that but I do expect them to have a midfield yeah that can service them properly I know and I just I feel that. like I feel like Harry Kane is is he tired is he <laughs> Is he bored? Yeah, like, I, know. I don't, I'm not, I'm not getting anything. And the other thing that's really interesting when we talk about passing, I remember watching uh, France play mm-hmm. and um, France play Germany and there was a pass and I enjoy, like, I felt bad for Matt Summel. I really did like his yeah. own goal. I felt bad because yeah. nobody wants to start that. And he's no. generally one of the players I dislike the least like yeah. I, I I don't like I just can't with Thomas Mueller he looks so sinister to me he's and always been a brat to me he's very like, br- yeah that's a yeah. great word he's bratty yeah. and I've always I've been angry since them since 2018 with the German program for not taking Lira Sane like I've been really yeah. mad at them and that was to their own to their own uh peril but I think one of the things that I uh um you know, wanted to, to point out was that there was a pass from Pogba to Mbappe to yes. Benzema yes. that was yes. ruled offside. Yes. But that pass from Pogba. I know. I just was like, I know the play you're talking about. It was okay. a moment where we're all breathless because yeah. it's, it's beautiful. And, you know, they're spread out the way they need to. And I didn't think France played its best match, but yeah. like, I loved that. And, you know, seeing some of the stuff and I'm seeing all this excitement about Belgium because I, I, first of all, let's just say this. I see y'all who ignored, you know, Romelu Lukaku and now we're out here supporting Belgium. I see you and I see you trying to get on this bandwagon of Lukaku when you ignored this man and his consistent calls against, you know, racism, racism. in football. And where he's, a, y'all he's quite a statesman, eh? He's, 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 I think he's fabulous. He is quite a statesman. Love that guy for a long time. Actually him, I'm him and Pogba. Like Pogba is one of my, I love Pogba. Yeah, he's <laughs> fun. He's a lot of fun. There's no yeah. question. Yeah. There's no yeah. question. Yeah. Um, but there's, I think there's all these things that, you know, kind of play into part. And if anything, it provides amplification. And, and I think it was uh, after, um, Christian Eriksen collapsed on the field with Denmark. Yeah. There was like a, a very sudden, palpable, absolute grief and, and and worry and stress, and everybody was very. It was very traumatic for so many of the players involved. 
and you know the ones in the tournament and then when Lukaku scored a brace after that he went directly to the camera and pointed out because you know uh, Erickson's his teammate and mm-hmm. they're friends and how wonderful he was in that moment like he yeah. made it about his teammate and not himself although he got up man scored a brace so but you know I just thought that that's and and going back to what you were saying about uh, Super Mario, Mario Balotelli, the way that that man was mistreated and egregiously and mm-hmm. persecuted by media in yep. such a such a horrific way, he, you know, it was and we saw we see that reflected in the way that Raheem Sterling is attacked by the Sun, and you know media rags in in, in the UK and just uh, Raheem Sterling is also somebody who I consider so dignified in the Mm -hmm. way that he responds and Marcus Rashford and what he did for child poverty and nutrition. Like you've got people out here doing the work in addition to being, you know, the superstars. It's, it's incredible to me. But isn't that interesting how the, um, the, the, the nest, the components of we're talking about footballers, as being great for the stuff on the field and off the field and the work that they've put in to, um, to lessen, to improve, you know, the situation, certain situations for marginalized communities. And I'm just, it's, it's just, it just struck me how different the ideal athlete is becoming. Mm. You know, after the Colin Kaepernick's, the LeBron James, the the Muhammad Ali's, um, Serena Williams, Serena Williams, um, uh, Osaka, and Naomi Osaka, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and and countless others, Megan Rapinoe, and mm-hmm. you know all of that. The entire U.S. women's uh, national women's soccer team and their um, their lawsuit for mm. equal pay. Mm-hmm. and all of that like it just goes to show how sort of like the I guess what you have to have now the work that that they're doing off the pitch off the court is now it's just so much more important to the overall our overall view of them yeah I mean I think that all of these things are what we take in when we look at the holistic way that we look at football, it's not just about the game. And I mean, this idea of like, you're saying the idea of what a footballer can be and what that looks like is shifting hundred percent. It's shifting. I mean, you've got the racist adages, adages of, of commentators that every time there's a black player, they talk about power and pace right Mm -hmm. every single time without fail there's power and pace and something and you're like come on y'all like come on yeah but at the same time you know there's ways in which sport media is also being used for different storytelling and like impactful storytelling and you know jonathan leo of the uh guardian had a really great piece talking about naomi osaka talked about how her comments shouldn't just make people inflect and be pointed fingers at Roland Garros because she withdrew from the tournament and subsequently also withdrew from Wimbledon. But he talked in that article and I really, really recommend that people read it. Um, he talked about mental health. And so that is shaping. It's not just mm-hmm. how strong you are, but it's how well you are. Yes. And it's, it's been, oh my gosh. That is such a good like nuance. So, 
you know, we want, and Kyrie Irving has been talking about this for a long time. You have a black and a man with indigenous roots who identifies with his indigeneity as well, talking about has become Muslim. So look at those, look at those intersections. I mean, yeah. Kyrie Irving out here, like, you know, doing all that. And he says stuff in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable, but guess what? That's what it is. Like no one's going to make their life experience more palatable for you. So, you know, I I appreciate all these athletes. And, you know, one of the things too, is like social media. I I had an interview recently and someone was, I can't remember what it was for. Oh, I love that. I can't, I can't remember anything. I can't remember yesterday. So, um, I feel you, you know, like (laughs) we're 16 months into the pandemic and fingers crossed, I'm getting my second shot this week. So I'm very excited. Um, but I'm also like, what I have for breakfast? Did I have breakfast? I don't, I don't, I don't remember. You know what I mean? Um, so this idea of what, you know, an, an athlete can be and how athletes are using their own social media to amplify their messages and their messaging, which is what fans did too. They mobilized through new media and digital media, which I think is amazing. And Naomi Osaka used Twitter and Instagram to share her feelings about what she was going through. And it leads us to a hard conversation. And then there's the people. And I must say this, the majority of people saying, well, it's her job. She should do it are the ones. And across my timeline, timeline, there are people from serious amounts of racial privilege and, and class privilege, not to say that Naomi Osaka isn't wealthy. I mean, she models for Louis Vuitton. I'm not saying she's not, but she comes and has not benefited in the same ways that those people have. And you can't argue with that. I don't care how rich a black person is. They still suffer from systems of racism and anti-blackness. I don't care. Like that's just a fact. Money doesn't eradicate racism. Which is why I have a problem uh, with people who think that getting rid of capitalism will get rid of all the problems in the world. In in the world, and I'm just like, uh, what you're assuming is that non-capitalist nations are racism-free, and they are not. No, they're, they're not. not. We have. We have a myriad, we have so many examples of that. And basically you're erasing the experiences of, you know, wealthy people who are still marginalized. They yeah. may be, it's, it's the difference between, it's like how wealthy women still, you know, suffer from, from, from patriarchy and, yeah. yeah. And, you know, are still like domestic violence doesn't stop at a certain income level, too, no, 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 for example. No. Yeah. So this idea that everything that's wrong is predicated on this capitalist system, I can't support because because of those reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think these are all the things like, don't get me wrong, capitalism is a horrible system from which also exactly anti-blackness perpetuates, yes. but it's not the solution because right. like I know very well even in leftist spaces I mean systems of sexism and misogyny and racism absolutely exist systems of homophobia exist like we know this yeah. just because the politics are to the left doesn't mean that there's not they're not problematic mm-hmm. exactly so which you know on the other side brings me to Cristiano Ronaldo um, which is impressive that like I think we're like 40 minutes in and haven't mentioned him but I will um, Cristiano Ronaldo is, um, arguably not arguably, I would say, um, probably the most successful player at every stat income level, you know, that you can even think of, um, and will be in the pantheon of the greatest football players of all time. 
when he retires. Um, he, Except he's never won a World Cup. He's not a World Cup winner. That's another. That's the asterisk, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He's won the Euros. So, so question. Okay, so this was not my original question, but now I'm like, I'll get back to that. Can you be a like in that pantheon of greats if you have not won a World Cup? No. Okay. I mean, I you want to talk about greats? I think Colleen Mbappe is on his way to. Oh, for sure. To beating him for sure, and I can't wait. And people were talking about how the highest Cristiano Ronaldo is like going to be one of the highest scorers in, in 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 highest international goals of all time. And then you had women sports writers out there going, Christine Sinclair is still seventy nine goals ahead of him. So like out here with like the bullhorns going, no. He's the best men's international, but also language matters. So yeah. I've written about uh, Ronaldo's implication in a you know a terrible rape cra- uh, rape case, mm-hmm. and um, I will tell you this: there was no amount of abuse I got more than from Ronaldo fans when I did that. I'm guessing so. I'm yeah. not surprised. So I wrote I'm for Time Time Magazine, so it was globally published, and talking about the ways in which sports media were also complicit. And now we've seen that again. We've seen that he comes out, he brings Portugal and the essays about him and the commentary about him excludes this huge piece of his life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that, the, again, the case with Catherine Maharaga, the woman who accused him, is complicated and the criminal case is dropped, although the civil, civil suit is still pending. And But he's still implicated in that. You know what I yeah. mean? It was a mess. And has and I think we should also recognize people like, well, he wasn't proven guilty in court. The statistics on offenders who are actually in abusers and rapists that are actually found guilty is ridiculous. And people are like, well, false accusation. She wanted to get money out of it. Let me assure you. And I'm going to say it for people on the back. There is no glory in going public about one of the world's most powerful PR players and sorry, PR firms and that player. There's nothing. There's no amount of money that can make it the emotional, psychological stress endured for a survivor. No, this this ain't about that. And that is a tactic used by people to dismiss survivors of violence. And it's not okay. And there is a way to talk about to talk about it, my co-host Jessica Luther just wrote a really good piece about it uh, for Global Sport Matters because she is like you know an award-winning journalist who's uncovered stories. She's an investigative reporter on sexualized violence in sport and in in, in in college football in particular in the United States, and you know wrote an article about how it's important to write about it with nuance. And there's there are ways to write about it by using the correct language and and you know all those things. So I think it's really really important. And I saw a shift in this when um, former Stanford swimmer Brock Turner was being reported. And I saw a shift then because I saw more people taking more journalists and women journalists taking to Twitter and using language that was appropriate that, Mm. you know, he was a rapist. He was, he was convicted and, you know, it was horrible that case, but there was a reluctance in media because we have to commit to a style guide. I'm like, you know what? I think we're beyond a style guide, like a style guide that still insisted that we not capitalize indigenous and black when we write. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care for the style guide. Like you push back where you can. I'm in Mm -hmm. media. It's not easy. Like you push back where you can. And, you know, I think that 
there's ways to do that. There's ways for social media to be more responsible. There's ways to use the right words. The Chicago Task Force and even FemaFesta in Canada have toolkits and media guides that I don't know why not every single sports editor, managing editor has on their desk. Why don't they? It's not a priority for them. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's not. To them, it's just a changing case. Who gives a fuck? Mm-hmm. You know, and to, but um, like English rules kind of dictate that you capitalize proper nouns. So I don't understand the issue with capitalizing it. Like mm-hmm. that's the language. So you not capitalizing it is intentional and a choice and mm-hmm. meant to send a message of, mm-hmm. there's a great book. It's called um, The Politics of Design. Mm-hmm. And it goes through, it goes through that issue of capitalization. And the fact is that um, the convention was, it used to be you capitalize white and you don't capitalize the rest mm-hmm. because, ju- because that was the way to show white supremacy. Mm-hmm. 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 That's fact. It's not, I'm not spewing an opinion. This mm-hmm. has been researched, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so um, the, you know, any, any outlet that doesn't do that now, bye. I just don't. I mm-hmm. like, I can't even get, like, we can't even get you to do that, which is the bare minimum. Then why are you even here? I just, and I just also, think do you want to be getting your information from an outlet or network that is that antiquated in the way that they do things? And I certainly don't. I pay yeah. for subscriptions to independent media. I pay for subscriptions for mainstream media that, you know, for paywalls and stuff. Like I have a su- subscription to the Toronto Star, which also mm. makes me an informed consumer, but a, like it can give me an ability to also wield power to criticize them. Like yes. They had this, they had this mess of an opinion debate about whether residential schools were a problem and Egerton Ryerson was a problematic figure. I'm like, are we, or is that what we're doing now? We're going to be debating indigenous genocide on the weekend. So I was like, no, I'm a subscriber. I'm also a grad student at X university and I'm also a journalist, but out of those things, the only thing that will wield power is the fact that I'm a subscriber and I yeah. pay. Yeah. Because that'll matter the most to them. Well, that's actually, that's an interesting part. Like, that's an interesting point that you're making. Like, we're, you know, I, I always say that the, the you know, the lie, the truth is paywall, the lies are free. Um, but I think on the other side of that coin is that when you do pay for something, now you've made an investment and now you're, in a, you're kind of like an investor, right? You are. And so does that, so... Is that sort of, will that fuel even greater sort of, um, um, uh, what sort I'm looking for, accountability to subscribers? I mean, accountability is a really, really, really big thing. Um, But I think that one of the things that we need to do is think about the way in which the medium is the message. And I'm a bit of a media theory nerd, Mm -hmm. but... But Marshall McLuhan said it, the medium is the message. Like, how are you relaying the story? Who is doing it? And, you know, Jessica Luther said something once that has always stuck with me. 
how the story is reported and who reports is, is as important as the story itself. Mm-hmm. And as a racialized woman and a minority in sports media, like definitely, I'm like, when I say minority, I don't like the term minority to refer to community people, but Me I am either. literally, literally one of the few. I'm the only and probably first reoccurring sports journalist to appear on national television. I mean, yeah. I, I can't think of another one, yeah. and which is a problem. And people ask them, what's your goal in life? And you know what? Actually, Erica, my goal is to be forgotten. Actually, it's to be forgotten. I want there to be so many black and brown women and so many indigenous women that people or, you know, non-binary folks from racialized communities that they don't like I'm there somewhere in the digital archives, but mm-hmm. there's so many, there's so many discussions at the intersections of race and, and, and gender expansiveness and that, that I'm forgotten. Like, that's what I want mm-hmm. that uh, truly. And, you know, I think that th- there's, but do I think that'll necessarily happen? Because like, it's one thing for people to be like, oh, you have nuance and this and that, but I'm one of the people with like, one of the few people in this country completely self-made. I'm a freelance journalist. Nobody mm-hmm. gave me anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fought tooth and nail and I'm still looking, you know, to see where I can be placed permanently. And, you know, um, because of the way that I operate and it's not always possible, you know, and at the end of the day, I'm like, should I just get an office job with perks? So my son can have braces. Cause I need them benefits, mm-hmm. you know, like I do, you know, paying bills and, you know, the work that I do. And you know, this like, Equity, diversion, inclusion isn't isn't a profitable thing. And talking at the intersections of race and gender is not profitable. It doesn't make us oodles of money. No. And so, you know, you make a choice, like, what do I need to do? And, you know, some days the choice is a bit heavier than others, but, (laughs) you know. So what brought you here since we're talking about that? Yeah. I mean, it, it, my journey has very much been... Uh, from personal experience, like I've been, it's funny in my, you were reading my bio and you're like athlete. I'm like, girl, I haven't played soccer in 16 months. I don't even know if I call myself an athlete anymore. Like our main league is starting up again, but uh, I'm not sure what I'll look like. Uh, I think, you know, I can. You and me both, girl. Uh, <laughs> you and me I'm both. Like, and my, my WhatsApp group of my soccer team were like, can we, can we make the Habs 25 minutes instead of like 45? <laughs> Like we're gonna need stretchers out in here. We're all like moms supposed to photos. Heat breaks. Yeah, we do, we do, we do. But like I'm gonna need a year to get back into shape where I was a year ago. Just you know. But you know, it was it was just very much where I came from and my experience and the lack of questions. And I was literally here because you know, people ask me about why I got into sports media. I was I wanted to see it being done differently. And that's the honest answer. I didn't like what the conversations that were happening and the way that they were being had. And, you know, it all came to a head for me. Like, I think the most pivotal moment, and I spoke about this in my TEDx talk when, and I wrote about Andrew Johnson for The Guardian, who is a, was a wrestler in high school in New Jersey at the time and had dreadlocks that were cut off. I remember um, that. So he could, so again, and for me, I had a very, visceral visceral reaction to that physical reaction yeah to that happening so did yeah I I had something similar too there was it was the violence of it it was there was there was this violent it was it was the violence that hit me Yeah, yeah so I was lucky enough to be able to write about that but also you know being having established a career where editors messaged me and said, can you write about this? And some of the time they're like, I get messages from editors. Like for example, 
um, you know, the attack in London, Ontario happened against a Muslim family and yes. absolutely brutal that wiped out an entire family and left a nine-year-old son as the only survivor. And I was not, I couldn't talk about it. Like you, we, it's been a year since the murder of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor's murders were not charged. We've seen Derek Chavant be charged, I'd be, uh, sorry, found guilty, but we're still carrying the weight yeah. and the grief of that. And yeah. I'm a non-Black person of color, but carried the trauma and the same way of systems of white supremacy. Then, you know, we had, you know, attacks in Palestinian communities yeah. in Palestine, and then 215 Indigenous babies were unearthed, and there'll be more. We know yeah. that. And yeah. then London happened. So it's like, we didn't get a chance to exhale and we're carrying this grief. But, mm. you know, I was talking to my therapist about it and I was like, I just need, you know, Ali Wong said, I don't want to lean in. I want to lie down. Yes. I lie down. And I said to her, I just want to be able to just open a cat cafe and stop and just not do this anymore. And she's like, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. And, you know, I had to take a hard look and self-care is really important. It's a huge part of what I do. I'm very mindful because there's very little space between how I occupy professionally and personally, those mm-hmm. things intersect. I can't turn off being a Brown woman at right. six o'clock, put my right. phone away. That's not what happens to me. I don't, I can't, you know, compartmentalize those pieces of who I am. And so, yes, it absolutely funnels into the way that I see stories and the way I report stories. Definitely. And I'm not, going to change that I think that there's power to that I think that that's important for the media industry because this whole idea of being objective is a gatekeeping mechanism to mm-hmm. keep racialized and marginalized people out of those spaces like to keeping you know queer folks and disabled folks away from being able to report without having invested interest I mean don't you have an invested interest in the truth yeah don't you and yeah. I'm sorry so like that's kind of where it is with that but, well, um, it's really interesting because I feel like Turtle Island's going through its, an yeah. existential crisis, and you know, which I, which you know, I you know, will talk about more later on in 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 later episodes of the podcast. But we really are going through an existential crisis that seems to be finally hitting people who could afford to have their to dismiss our experiences and um I'm here for it and I'm here for this systemic change and I know it won't be completed in our generation I know we might not even get past step one in our generation I don't know but the point is it's a fight that you keep fighting period Shireen thank you thank you so much where can people find you um, I'm on Twitter. I live in Twitter street. So it's underscore at underscore Shireen Ahmed underscore. And I'm there often talking about everything, yelling about something, but you can find me there. And my website is www.shireenahmed.com. S-H-I-R-E-E-N-A-H-M-E-D. So thank you so much for having me on Bad and Bitchy. Oh, and make sure that you check out Shireen's Burn It All Down podcast. It's awesome. I listened to the Kobe episode. Oh, remember? Well, obviously, you, you know, obviously, you know, you did a Kobe episode, but I listened to the Kobe episode and it was different from any other Kobe episode, like at the time that I was listening to, because it really talked about his um, investment in sports for women, his, a lot of his legacy on a really like personal emotional level. 
and it opened my eyes to like, because I'm just, I'm not into basketball as much. I used to be, I was, but more college. And um, the, it really gave a different perspective on how he touched women of color. So yeah, check it out. All right. Until next time, y'all. Bye. My bitch is bad and bullshit.